well, for our time this morning. Can we return to that portion of Scripture that we read from Isaiah 62 and Isaiah 63? And we want to choose for our text this morning, verse 1 of chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1 will be our text then. Let us read together our text as we find it in God's Word. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And seeking the Lord's blessing, we want to ponder just a very small part of that text. And it is really this question that we find right at the very beginning. Who is this? Who is this? And that's the title I want to give to our meditation this morning. Who is this? And by the help of God, we want to answer the question posed by the prophet Isaiah. Now, some of you are regulars here. Others are not regulars here at all. And we don't know anything about your background or your, your biblical knowledge. But I'm sure that even the regulars who are here may well have had some difficulty with this reading that we have here this morning. First of all, of course, it is a prophecy. It's not like a, a gospel narrative. This is a prophecy, and that itself presents its own challenges and difficulties. But I put it to you, friends, before we come to our text, it will help us just to dwell for a moment or two on the preceding verses. In the verses that we find in chapter 62, before we arrive, at our text. Now, the prophet Isaiah, he ministered about 600 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this portion of his book was written for the people of Judah who were in captivity in Babylon. You may well remember last week that we spoke very briefly about this, and we noticed that it was prophesied that the people of Judah would go into captivity. They would be there 70 years in Babylon because of their idolatry. Isaiah did not see this in the sense that he did not live through it, but he prophesied that this would happen. And he also prophesied that they would come out of Babylon. And this is what this portion of this book is written to. It's written for those primarily who are in Babylon. And because they're in Babylon and because they're in captivity, many people think it's all over for the church of God. It is a terrible time for the church of God. They're in a desperate state in Babylon. 
What do we find in verse 4 of chapter 62? Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. The people in Babylon are saying to themselves, the Lord has forsaken us. He has cut us off. And then it goes on. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. We're desolate. We're forsaken. We're forlorn. There's no hope for us. But the prophet is praying and he's telling them that is not going to be the case. Ultimately, God is going to visit them. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. No longer. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. It's not going to be that way forever. That's what the prophet is telling them as he is praying to the Lord his God. Instead, they're going to be known by new names. Hephzibah. That's what we're told here. Verse 4 again, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah. What does that mean? It means my delight is in her. In other words, the prophet is telling them that they're no longer going to be desolate. Instead, God is going to delight in them. He's going to shine his face upon them again. And more than that, and thy land, Beulah. You know, they were Jews. They were in Babylon. They were under captivity. And their land was desolate, their homeland, the land of their fathers, the land they loved. It was covered over in weeds. It was desolate. No longer. Beulah. What does it mean? It means I'm going to marry you, to marry or to, to rule over. In other words, what he's saying by this prophecy here is God is going to look favorably upon them again. And the prophet, this is a prayer here, the prophet here, he encourages the people, others to pray. For instance, in verse 7, he tells them, give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. He's telling people not to give up. He's telling people there's better days ahead. Continue to pray for Jerusalem. And to encourage them again, look at verse 8. No longer would their enemies abuse them. What's happening in verse 8? The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies. The people were producing produce. What was happening? Their enemies were scoffing it. And the sons of thy stranger shall not drink thy wine for the which thou hast labored. In other words, all the, the work that the people were putting into the land, strangers were benefiting from it. No more. It was going to change. And the prophet again is reminding them in verse 11, Better days ahead, behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, say ye to the daughter of Zion, that's to his people, that's another word, name for his people, behold, thy salvation cometh. What's salvation? Salvation is freedom, it's deliverance, it's coming. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. And he goes on, verse 12. 
and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. They had been forsaken. They felt they were, they were forsaken, but no longer. This is what the prophet saw as he was praying. Now, friends, we have arrived at our text. Is it not true that many people today look upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as something that's antiquated, something that is dying, something that's soon to be buried, dead, out of the way? This is not the way that the intellectuals of our day look upon uh, the Christian gospel and the Christian church. The movers and shakers of this world, those people who have influence, you could think of the politicians, you could think of business people, you could think of the intellectuals that fill our schools and our colleges and our universities. Once a place where the gospel was proclaimed and the word of God was honored, but now it's thrown out. No one cares about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? It's dead. It's dusted. It's had its time. It's finished. Is that not the way that people look upon the cause of Christ today in the world? They think it's all over. Maybe there are some here who think it's all over. And maybe they look upon the Lord Jesus Christ as some effeminate person when they don't realize that he's the most glorious individual that ever walked upon this earth and that he is glorious beyond our imagination and we cannot preach highly of him. Well, that's the way it is, friends. This is how some people look upon the Christian church. They laugh and they scorn. What government pays attention to what the church says today? And somehow, we don't wonder at that. We don't wonder at that. We're not going to name denominations. We're not going to single out people. We're not here to do that. But you live in the same world as I do. You see the same news as I do. You see the one denomination wondering about the gender of God. What a farce! Who's going to listen to a church that debates about the gender of God? Others are ones who cannot make up their mind about what a, a man or a woman is. Would you get involved with a church like that? Would you listen to someone who cannot tell you about the basic facts of bi biology? Would you listen to someone like that? Do you not think that you should hold people like that in derision? Uh, no wonder the people don't listen to the church. Why do they not listen to the church? They don't listen to the church because, because they don't proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, and they don't up, open up the Word of God and declare that Word. Instead, it is nothing but human wisdom that we have today in the church of the living God. And therefore, it's highly surprising that many people are dismissing the church 
and they look upon it as something that's for people who are afraid of the dark. Is that, now, is that not how the atheist will describe the Christian? Is he not someone who's afraid of the dark? Well, we would turn back and say to the atheist, you are someone who will not face up to the light, the light of the gospel. We can't say something to you, sir, madam, those who think there is no God. We have something to say. And the prophet has something to say to us today. Because here, in our text, in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1, as he's praying, as he's seen this glorious vision, as he's seen a vision that would encourage him and his people, what does he see? Who is this? He sees someone. He's praying. He's in a vision. He's a prophet. And he sees someone glorious come before him. And in these six verses here, we're not going to look at them all, but in these six verses here, he sees something of this glorious person. Who is this that's coming? What do we notice? Who is this that cometh from Edom? What does that mean? Well, Edom, friends, represents Esau. Who is Esau? Well, Esau is Jacob's twin older brother. You may ask, who is Jacob? Well, Jacob is just another word for Israel because Jacob's name was changed for Israel. And therefore, when he says, who is this that cometh from Edom? It's a reference to someone who has come from the enemies of God's people. Yes, I did see that Esau and Edom are one. And Esau was Jacob's twin brother. But they were enemies. They were long-term enemies. These twin brothers were enemies, and Edom, Esau, hated Jacob and Israel. And here is this person coming from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah. What's Bozrah? Well, Bozrah in the Bible is two things. It is a, a town in Moab, but that, that's not the reference here. Rather, the Bozrah that is here is the capital city of Edom. And once upon a time, it belonged to an early Edomite king. So what we have here in this prophecy is, is this glorious person coming from the very heart and the very center of God's enemies, the Edomites, coming from the capital. That's what he sees here. And that's the glorious vision that we want to look at this morning. This person that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah. The prophet Isaiah was praying for the Lord's blessing to fall upon the church. And what does he see? He receives a vision of the coming Savior. 
Now, initially, initially, this was for the people in captivity. And this was to tell them that they were going to come out of captivity. Something glorious, wonderful. You've heard of them coming out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Well, this is like it. This is a second exodus, and they were going to come out. And their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was going to do this. Now, friends, we cannot limit the application exclusively and entirely to the people in captivity. This is something about prophecy. It can be applied in every age of the Christian church. And what the, the prophets saw here is ultimately a Savior coming who would revive the cause of God in his day. And this is a message that's applicable to every age of the Christian church. We're in times of forsakenness and desolation, and it would be easy for us to be crestfallen and despondent. Instead, friends, we need to look at this person. Who is this person? Well, this person is none other than the Son of God. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Savior in the Old Testament. He's the Savior in the New Testament. There is no other Savior. There's no other mediator. There's no other way to get right with God. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. The way of salvation is exactly the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. There's no difference. And Isaiah, 600 years before the birth of Christ, he saw the glory of the Savior. And friends, this is what we need to see today as a congregation, as individuals, as a nation, as a church, this is what we need to see. We need to see the glory of this person. And there's one or two things, therefore, I wish to see concerning this person. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? This that is glorious in his apparel. The first thing we notice about this person, friends, is glory. His glory. Glorious in his apparel. He had royal robes upon him. And surely this accurately describes to us the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, as the Son of God, has come down from heaven. He has left the realms of glory. Friends, you and I know nothing about heaven. We can glean very, very little from the Word of God. What we know is true and accurate, of course, but we know nothing of that world that is to come. We know nothing of the glory and the majesty of heaven itself. Is it not true? Did we not look at it some time ago in 2 Corinthians Paul had a vision. He was taken up into the third heaven. He saw things he couldn't speak about that were so glorious. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has come down from heaven, and he was in his all his glory when he came down. 
His glory was veiled, of course. On rare occasions, he gave a glimpse of his glory. You could think of the day of transfiguration as he was there on the mount. All his, his visage changed. He was glorious. The people couldn't look upon him. It was so glorious. And there he revealed his, his second coming glory to the disciples, to Peter, James, and John. They saw it. The others didn't. The Lord Jesus Christ is all glorious. All glorious. He is like no other. We cannot grasp it. We cannot understand it. But he is God in the flesh, even in the manger. Even there as a helpless babe, it was God in the flesh. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Oh, can you understand that? Can you grasp that? You simply must believe it. And it should cause us to prostrate ourselves before him. God in the flesh, God in all his majesty, God in all his glory, there in the manger, yes, and there on the cross also. Who is this in all his glory? Friends, that's the Savior. That's the one who came from heaven. And he left the realms of glory. He didn't leave his glory. He couldn't be divested of his glory. Impossible. God cannot be divested of his glory. But his glory was veiled. It was veiled in his flesh so that he would be no different from any other man here. If he was among us, he wouldn't shine. You wouldn't be able to separate him other than by his holy life and his sweet, pure conversation. But nothing physical. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra, this that is glorious in his apparel? Friend, Christian, you've got a Savior. You've got a Savior who's all glorious. Oh, the world might laugh and the world, world might disdain, and the world might spit in his face, but we love him. Why do we love him? Because he's all glorious. And throughout all the ages of eternity, he will always be all glorious. But more, more, we have here surely traveling in the greatness of his strength. Here we have power. I said earlier, that many people look upon Christ as some effeminate individual. Oh, if they only knew, here is a real man. There's very few real men in our day and generation, but here is the very pinnacle of manhood, and you'll find it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at his life. See him there, friends. See all that he did. See him on the cross. See him perishing there on the cross. He was about to die. Yet he was able to raise his voice. It is finished. Have you ever visited a deathbed? Not a pleasant experience, but it can be profitable. Have you ever visited a deathbed? Have you seen a loved one? Declining, you know if you have to speak even quietly and softly 
takes a lot of effort and energy. Life has been taken from them. Christ on the cross, bleeding, dying, in agony, not just physically, emotionally, spiritually. God was laying upon him the iniquity of his people, yet he was able to cry out, it is finished, he says. And he says it that God might hear. He says it as the angels might hear. He says it that those who were round about him, scolding him and jeering him, that they might hear. It's all finished. I've done everything. Oh, what power he displayed. And God in the Lord Jesus Christ is truly a glorious powerful individual. And we see that, do we not, in the way that he handled his temptation? If you're a Christian, you'll know something about temptation. And no one knows what temptation's like, like the Lord Jesus Christ. Forty days and forty nights he was in the wilderness, and then the devil came along to try and tempt him. When he was, in some sense, physically weak, did he succumb to temptation? No. Our first parent, Adam, he succumbed to temptation in paradise. Our Savior, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, in the wilderness, hungry, thirsty, yet he did not succumb. He was able to withstand the evil one, and stand up to that temptation. We have a powerful Savior, friends. What's more, I that speak in righteousness. Our Savior is righteous, pure, undefiled, holy, blameless. It doesn't matter about your political persuasion, but I'm sure that every one of us, regardless of what party we support, we long for righteousness. We long for righteousness in our politicians in Westminster and Hollywood. And yes, we would long for righteousness in those who rule over us in local government, we long for righteousness wherever we are, whatever aspect of public life, we're looking for righteousness. We want righteousness among our homes and our families. We want this. We don't get it. But you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. I that speak in righteousness. He speaks in righteousness. He declares his will to us in his word. Here we have his word before us. We have the completed canon of the scriptures. We have 66 books in the Bible. And they're all the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all his words are righteous. They are true. You can rest your soul upon the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. Oh, what a thing to say. But it's true. Here we are today. We are gathered around his word. This is his word. A word of righteousness. 
Who is this then? He is glorious. He is powerful. He is righteous. And all that he does is righteous. But I want you to notice, friends, his condescension. Where do we find that? Well, towards the end of verse 2. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? This is a glorious person. He's in royal robes. Yet he's been doing manual work. He's been treading grapes in the wine fat. What does this symbolize? Well, this is symbolizing the fact that he went to war against his enemies. And he treated his enemies like this. Like a person would tread grapes in order to make wine. There would be a, a vast quantity of grapes in the, in the wine fat. And in order to get the juice out, they would trample upon the grapes. And this is what he did. And surely this was an act of condescension on the behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. He went to war against his enemies. He went to war against the enemies of Israel, Edom. He went to their very capital, to Bosra. He fought against the enemies of God's people, and he overcame. He overcame his enemies. Friends, this is what Jesus Christ has done for his people. We have a powerful enemy. The Bible describes the evil one as a roaring lion who walketh about seeking whom he may destroy. You might laugh. You might think, oh, this is nonsense. But the Bible's clear upon this matter. Mankind has an enemy. You might think your enemy is God. Well, we could dwell on that, but in some sense that is true. But you have a, a far worse enemy than that. And that is the devil. And the devil, friend, is out to draw you, to take you, to allure you to hell. He's on that way. He cannot escape. There is no hope for him whatsoever. And such is the depravity of his nature. He knows that. He's well aware of the end that awaits him. And he cannot change that. But such is his malignity that he wants to draw as many of mankind with him. And I can tell you today, by the authority of the word of God, that he's out for your soul today. He wants you to be destroyed along with him. 
and you can't face him. You can't stand up against him. But oh, hallelujah, there is someone who did stand up against him. There is one who went to war against him. Who is that person? That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a picture here of what he did. He trampled over our greatest enemy, the devil himself. When did he do that, friends? When did he do that? Oh, he did that on the cross. Colossians 2 verse 15 talks about what happened on the cross. We know he was crucified. And the world thought, that's him finished. The devil, he was rubbing his hands. But no, Christ's death was a victory. Christ's death was not a defeat. When he said, it is finished, he did not mean to say, for instance, well, it's all over. I did my best. It's over now. Nonsense. There, friends, on the cross, we are told in Colossians 2, verse 15, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What's he talking about? What's Paul talking about? Having spoiled principalities and powers, that's a reference to the devil. Angels are, are described as principalities and powers. He is a fallen angel. And having spoiled, having made a fool of them, we might say, principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. The resurrection proves that Jesus won the ultimate victory. That's it, friends. Our enemy has been defeated. As we've said on other occasions, we war against an enemy that has the curse of God upon him. Oh, does this not fill your heart then with hope and expectation? Oh, the devil's powerful, we know. And we cannot stand up against him in our own strength, we know. These things are clear to us, we know. But we're not standing up against him in our own strength or our own merits. We have the Savior who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is this one, then. This is this one who humbled himself. He was like a manual laborer. Now, we're not in any sense going to decry manual labor. Labor is from God. And we all need manual laborers. And it's a lawful and legitimate calling. But this is what this person was like. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's in glorious royal apparel. And here he is undertaking what should be undertaken by a manual laborer. 
This speaks to us of the condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ coming from heaven to the sin-cursed world. Philippians talks about this, and with this I'm going to close. Philippians talks about this, and it talks about the condescension and the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before it talks about what Christ undertook, he tells them, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. What was the mind that was in Christ, you might ask? He goes on, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This person here, who is this? He humbled himself. We cannot grasp or comprehend the contrast in glory, worshipped and adored by the angels, the Creator, the one who spoke and brought all things into being, the one who made the universe, the one who upholds the universe. This one came down from heaven, lived like us in poverty for 33 years, suffered and died like a wretched criminal. What a contrast. Here we see the condescension of this glorious person. And friends, he condescended and he humbled himself in order to save his people. Who is this? This is the Son of God. This is to encourage us, friends. We are somewhat forsaken and desolate today. No one's going to deny that. The professing Christian church is in a pathetic state today. What must we do? We must look to this person. We must see him in all his glory. We must look with the eye of faith upon this person whom we have just touched upon in our sermon. We could go on sermon upon sermon upon this person. Who is this person? This person is the Savior, and this person is saving today. <laughs> Are you trusting him? Are you? Time then to seek the Lord. Time to call upon him while he is near. He has come in order to save. And he is mighty to save. He will save to the uttermost. 
Amen. And may God bless his word to us. Let us pray together.